Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a, a moment, a conversation with Donna Coleman Stribling. She leads one of the Southeast's largest prosecution offices. Yes, she's the Cab County Solicitor General. And you'll hear more about the community-centered work that she incorporates in, incorporates into the department. And also, we'll talk about a recent national award she received. Plus, many of the nation's K-12 through students are settling back into school for in-person class instruction. But for some, there may be mental and behavioral issues related to COVID-19. Children who have lost a loved one to covid are going to be experiencing this transition back to in-person school in a very different way than children who didn't experience that loss, right? That's tremendously huge. So we'll speak with two Emory University pediatric experts, and we'll talk about what parents and teachers can do to best support students. All that's coming up, but first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is announcing 105 medically trained National Guard personnel will be deployed to many of Georgia's hospitals. Now, according to a statement from the governor, the personnel will assist healthcare workers during the ongoing surge of the Delta variant of the coronavirus that we're all familiar with. Now, here in our region, that includes Grady Hospital, of course, in Atlanta, Piedmont Fayette in Fayetteville, Houston Medical Center, and Warner Robins. Meanwhile, infectious disease experts hope that now that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's full approval of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine will actually convince more people to, yes, get the shot. Emory University's Dr. Colleen Kelly says a number of people were waiting for federal regulators to complete a full review of the vaccine. So we hope that that will encourage those folks um, that it has, the vaccine has undergone rigorous uh, approval um, and it has been vetted completely and it now meets the highest criteria um, of full FDA approval. Vaccination rates in Georgia now continue to lag nationally behind what other states are doing, despite a recent surge in cases fueled by the, of course, we know the highly transmissible Delta variant. Drug makers Moderna and Johnson & Johnson have also applied to the FDA for full approval of their COVID-19 vaccines. In other news, a federal judge says part of Georgia's sweeping new election law that broadly prohibits the photographing of a voted ballot is likely unconstitutional. Now, U.S. District Judge J.P. Boulay granted a preliminary injunction on that section of the law late last week. That means it cannot be enforced for now. He declined to block a number of other provisions that mostly have to do with monitoring or photographing parts of the election process. The judge's order says the broad ban on photographing a voted ballot in both public and non-public places likely violates voters' First Amendment rights. And some news regarding Stone Mountain. The group that oversees Stone Mountain State Park has officially adopted a new logo 
one that does not include an image of the large Confederate carving that's actually on the side of the mountain. The Stone Mountain Memorial Association's new logo features a picture of the park's lake and a wider view of the mountain. Here is CEO Bill Stevens. Some thought the other symbol was not unifying, and so we wanted to make a change. And uh, I think this is an appropriate logo for a state authority, and uh, we'll go forward with it. Stevens says the Stone Mountain Memorial Association is finalizing an advisory committee that will explore other potential changes. The board is also in the process of moving Confederate flags away from the main hiking trail at the park and finding a new company to manage day-to-day operations of the park's hotels and attractions. Also, if it works once, why not try it again? DeKalb County is again offering a $100 incentive for residents to Yes, get the COVID-19 vaccine. The county is offering everyone who gets the shot at Stonecrest Mall this Saturday a $100 prepaid debit card. Free Moderna and Pfizer vaccinations will be available from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. to anyone 12 years or older. Now, in the cab, 47% of the residents are fully vaccinated. That's according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. But only about 40% of black and Hispanic residents have received at least one dose. So get a shot. Get a hundred bucks. And finally. Longevity is fine, but when you're able to do it and maintain your craft, it's even better. And now the journey ends. Longtime Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts has died. He was 80 years old. Never flashy, y'all. Unassuming, but always on time. Keeping the high energy legendary stones at their peak. No cause of death was listed. In a statement from the band and Watts spokesperson, it reads, It is with immense sadness that we announce the death of our beloved Charlie Watts. He passed away peacefully in a London hospital earlier today, surrounded by his family. We kindly request that we request the privacy of his family, band members, and close friends as respected at this difficult time. He was a cherished husband, father, grandfather, and also a member of the Stones, one of the greatest drummers of his generation. I'll add this. Thank you for inspiring so many young drummers, Charlie Watts. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The work of one local solicitor general is being recognized. You may know her. In fact, I got a tweet this morning or actually a message from one says, I love Donna Coleman Stribling. I said, OK, all right. The solicitor general for DeKalb County was recently awarded the Solicitor General of the Year 2021 
at the Prosecuting Attorneys Council Annual Conference, which I did not even know one existed, but now we do. A veteran prosecutor she is. She joins you now to talk more about just, not just the award, but the role of the Solicitor General. There's, of course, now the crime with this pandemic and so much more. And Solicitor General Stribling, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here today. I certainly am excited to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations on the award. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's back up a little bit and let's talk about these last 18 months. Um, and I've asked everyone this because I'm always curious about their own reflection as it relates to the pandemic and this, this moment that we've all been in some time now. You know, this is, um, of course, the pandemic has taken a toll on everyone's life. You know, I don't know that anyone can necessarily say they've escaped it. But what we see has also been a pandemic of crime, uh, of mental illness, um, of a lot of things. And all of, the, all of the ills that we have always show up at a time like this. And so um, just, as, just like any other county, any other, especially metropolitan area, um, we've, had our, we've had our concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're certainly seen uh, in the world that I am in, which is that is misdemeanor prosecution. And even though we're talking about misdemeanor prosecution, you all still had to shift in how you all yeah. operate over there in DeKalb County. Where are you all now? I mean, a lot of the, the courts are still grappling with how do we return to the traditional day-to-day operations. What are you all doing? What's your, what phase are you in now? You know, I am, I'm so proud of our county because um, we are led by our, our chief Superior Court judge, uh, Judge Jackson, and they took it seriously. Our CEO, our, our judges, everyone took this seriously and um, immediately recognized that we needed to adjust. And we did. And for such a long period of time, we um, were completely virtual. Um, I don't. I knew that when I started practicing law back in the 90s that I never thought we would be on a computer addressing cases and resolving matters and things of that nature, but it happened. Mm-hmm. And it allowed us to to work in a place that people feel safe. Well, now we're back in a hybrid situation and we are um, we are in court in person on some occasions. Um, many of our things are still virtual, mm-hmm. um, but we understand that we want to ensure that everyone's rights are protected. Has this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But has this created a backlog? Are you all able? Where are you in the process? Are you? I, I feel silly saying, have you caught up with some of those cases? But you haven't. No. I know the answer to that. No, no, we haven't. And um, to be perfectly honest, um, what we do is 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 what we can do right now, and that is address the things that we think we can we can deal with at this moment. We have not caught up. We are in a backlog. Um, I I know that my other uh, prosecutors throughout the state and throughout the country are dealing with the same issues. Mm-hmm. But it's also the recognition that we may have to do some things a little different. And we're trying to resolve cases in some situations very differently than we may have done prior to the, the pandemic. How can you do that? How can you resolve some of those cases? Well, some of the cases we look at and we decide, is this something that we need to, to now place in our diversion programs? I am so blessed that we have such a, uh, a good number of diversion programs that existed prior to the pandemic. And some of them we've revisited and we've reached out um, and said, listen, this is something we think we should resolve in this, what, this way now. 
um, is this something we can we can address and we can address whatever problem was there. Um, but because there's no way we're going to be able to catch up by processing everything that came through our office. It's just, I don't know if that's possible. Are many of the cases Solicitor General Stribling do sort of resolve revolve around whether or not an individual might need some wraparound service or some type of diversion program, as you just mentioned? Yes, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, working with our partners um, and finding different programs, finding different ways to provide people resources um, and seeing if we can address some of those problems. Some of those problems is something that while we couldn't shine a light on it, then we have the opportunity to do so now. And so we're spending a lot of time just um, looking at those individual cases and seeing if there's something we can do differently. You mentioned the uptick in crime. And of course, we obviously we know not just here in the Atlanta area, not just in Georgia, but throughout the nation. You believe much of this is pandemic related? I, I certainly do. Um, I see this uptick in crime. I think there were some reports yesterday about the uptick in crime. And we are seeing things now that we've, we've never seen before, or the number the types of reports, the- um, Like what? Types, the types of crime. The, I'll be perfectly honest with you. A lot of what we're seeing are crimes of people simply can't deal with what's going on in the world this isolation, hmm. they're reacting to isolation in a different way. Um, they're responding in a different way to minor things, but it's, it's a lot of anger. It's a lot of um, just, you know, other issues that are coming out. They may have lost a loved one. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot of people react in a way simply because they're in a, we're in a pandemic that no one saw necessarily coming. And we don't, we haven't really taken hold of it. And now we're trying, we're telling people to individually figure out how to respond to it and how to deal with it. Domestic violence, I know there's been an increase. We've seen that. We've heard that from many law enforcement officials, whether it's Fulton County, DeKalb County, even throughout Georgia. Do you have enough resources then? And I think I may know the answer to this. Uh, within your department for those diversion programs or wraparound services, what's missing? What do you need more of specifically? Well, you know, um, I don't know if we will find out exactly what those numbers look like when you talk about the uptick in domestic violence until I think well after the pandemic is, has ended. I say that because um, when I looked at the numbers for 2020, you saw the uptick, but it wasn't maybe as extreme as what we thought. What I truly believe is that there wasn't a large reporting mm. of domestic violence. I believe that it exists. I strongly believe that it was, it increased. I question whether we really have a true handle on the number of matters that actually occurred. Um, people didn't report because they simply were in a home where you know, law enforcement also had to react and, and our court system had to, to mm -hmm. respond to COVID in a different way as well. And so um, tr there were some, there were, I believe a number of people who failed to report domestic violence incidences simply because they knew the response to that was not going to get them the answer that they needed right now. 
And so it was better to not report, to leave the home intact as it is, um, which is never the answer, but certainly I think people found themselves in a different level of pandemic. And that can sometimes lead to a even deadlier outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when you talk about do we have the resources, we can always use more. We know that um, there is this increase. We know that we need more. We need more um, counseling. We need more help. We need more resources. Um, you know, there was a question of evictions. All of these things exist mm-hmm. and all tie in and they all did tie in during the pandemic. And so I think that that we see it in our criminal justice system every day. Something that stood out for you, by you, was this Not In My Decab initiative. And I believe you were the first Solicitor General in Georgia to add victim advocates to police precincts. Tell our our listeners why that was so important. Well, back in 2019, we actually um, thought, and and I, I strongly believe it was, one of the best decisions we made was to place victim advocates at our local precincts so that when there is a response to a misdemeanor crime that involves domestic violence, if our advocates have a quicker response and ability to contact our victims and even to lead and guide and provide advice to our law enforcement, then we build different relationships. We provide more resources and we do it in an, at a more impactful time. And that is right after the arrest has occurred. So it allows us to reach out to our victims, especially in the misdemeanor cases, um, in, in, you know, at an earlier stage. Um, and we have been so blessed because like I said, that started in 2019, but we actually were able to increase those resources in 2020 and that was due to having a being able to have a CEO, Michael Thurman, one of our commissioners, Marita Davis Johnson, who provided me with those resources to increase that staffing in my office. And how have you been able to measure the effectiveness of that? Well, we see it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at uh, recidivism. We look to see if, in fact, the, the families who we've been able to service have uh, changed their changed their location or perhaps uh, been able to grapple with the resources that are out there and connect with them, um, we stay in contact and we continuously reach out to our victims who we've serviced in order to see, all right, do you have what you need and is there something that we can do to help? If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Donna Coleman-Stribling. She's the Solicitor General of DeKalb County. Let me ask you, do you think folks know what y'all do? No. <laughs> I love that. I love asking folks that. They don't know what you're well, doing. They have no idea. It's funny. Um, I've, I've been asked, am I the first solicitor? I say no. Um, I've, they've asked me to name the people before. Most people still don't. Um, it is a long name, but I tell them it's a very important job because mm-hmm. I can tell you that um, whether it's the church members, it's the, the people who go to school with your children, something in my office has impacted their life. Because misdemeanors impact all of us. It impacts our quality of life. It impacts our roads, the safety of our roads. Um, of course, you just mentioned domestic violence. But, you know, when you talk about DUIs, domestic violence, um, code enforcement, that's all. that all falls within my office. You have some priorities for the rest of this year and going into 2020, 2022 as well, correct? 
Yes, absolutely. And I will, I will still and stay focused on what I call not in my decap, which is that domestic violence initiative that you mentioned earlier. Um, it is my goal to con continue to staff and continue to provide those resources of advocates at our precincts um, to help with our victims and also to just assist our, our law enforcement. So uh, we have two in our precincts. I, I, my hope and my goal and is that, you know, maybe they'll give me two more, give me funding for two more to put at my, the precincts located here in DeKalb County and continue that measure. Um, you know, I will stay focused on our streets and, and, and do our best in order to address some of the safety concerns that we've also seen. Mm -hmm. Street racing is a big deal. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal over here in Atlanta, too. It is. And so we, we will continue to stay focused on what we, we are seeing in our streets um, and, of course, the safety of our streets. Um, but we, we will continue to also focus on those matters that we think can be diverted and we think we can give people second chances. And to, um, if, if in fact there's a situation where we can provide resources, mm -hmm. the things that come in our office are, uh, you know, those first time issues or first time, I, I will be honest with you, mistakes. If we can provide those second chances for individuals, we're staying focused on that as well. So the key through your lens and through your department is to have those community oriented, community-focused services Absolutely. To, to prevent some of the same folks from coming back, seeing you and other folks. That's, that's right. Uh, we know that this is a, this is a gateway. Um, we see our, our young adults finding themselves in this system, and if we can keep them from moving to a different system, that's our goal. Uh, we also are staying focused on our victims and recognizing that, you know, they deserve also justice. Um, but it, it is that balance. It is that balance. But I, my, my hope and my prayer is to continue that message. You received the Solicitor General of the Year 2021 doing the, this, I'm sorry, it doesn't crack me up. I just didn't know it existed. The Prosecuting Attorneys Council Annual Conference. Yes. What y'all do there? <laughs> <laughs> we, we do a lot of talking. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about those things that have affected our offices we talk about new laws mm -hmm. um and i'm and i was truly honored to receive this this was a peer-reviewed award and so i was nominated by the solicitor general of fulton county keith gamage and i truly appreciate the nomination and the fact that this group of solicitor solicitors selected me for this i'm, I'm still honored by it but it is it is an opportunity for us to get together and talk about the laws um, continue training mm -hmm. and um, connect with all the other prosecuting offices throughout the state of Georgia. When we talk about, and I've had these, this conversation so many times with folks, when we talk about whether you want to call it criminal justice reform or just justice reform, what role do you see someone like yourself and your department playing in all of that? You know, one of the things that occurred this year was um, some new laws regarding record restriction. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was a, a prosecutor just starting out, it was expungement and it has now evolved into this, this something very different. But I will tell you in the state of Georgia, the fact that someone's record could possibly be restricted and they actually had a conviction for it. Mm -hmm. Look at our role as prosecutors is one to, to look through that lens and, and make the, the 
decisions. Um, and of course, all of these are based on what the law tells us to do right now at this time, but to recognize when we have the opportunity to, to perhaps give a second chance and to offer a second chance. Um, and if the law applies and allows us to do it, to do it. And so I think that we are, I'm blessed to be in a state that have a number of prosecutors who have that same um, thought process and are progressive and, and think about both sides. Um, certainly stay victim centered. There's never a question about that, but also to recognize that we have, we have an opportunity sometimes. And, and when we do justice, it's also an opportunity in some situations to provide second chances. Second chances. Donna Coben Stribling, the Solicitor General of DeKalb County. Congratulations again on that national award. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you all are doing for the community. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Early this year, shortly after the Pfizer vaccine was made available for teens, I had a conversation with Dr. Jane Wilcove, the founder of DeKalb Pediatric Center. Now, she had a lot to say about the state of the mental health of kids after living through the pandemic for more than a year. The impact may not have been on the hospitalizations and the death rate that we've been hearing about for a year. But the emotional impact for these kids has just been beyond enormous. Mm -hmm. Um, The academic, missing school, missing friends, missing life cycle events, graduations, proms, um, last, last year, summer camp, summer activities, work, seeing their grandparents. So as pediatricians, we've seen less and less illness as people are socially distanced and isolated and more and more mental uh, health issues. We've probably talked about and prescribed more things for anxiety and depression than we did antibiotics in the, in the last year. For teens. For teens. For teens. Yeah. It's wow. changed the whole shape of the practice. Um, there's not a day that we're not dealing with uh, issues that teens and even younger kids are uh, experiencing. So anxiety, depression. Um, I know you eating disorders. Um, Weight gain, weight loss, social isolation, um, fighting with their parents that when they're at home, cooped up with them. Hmm. Now, as kids and teens are returning back to school for in-person class instruction, school procedures have changed a lot. We know that. And many students are having to adjust and adapt. Dr. Vita Johnson is a professor of pediatrics at Emory School of Medicine and the executive director of Partners for Equity in Child and Adolescent Health. And I'm also joined by Dr. Jennifer Holton, an assistant professor of medicine and program director for Emory's, for Emory's Child and Adolescence Psychiatry Fellowship Program. And they both join me now to talk about all of this, the mental and behavioral health issues that some kids may face as they return to schools and what we all can do as parents, as teachers, as aunties, as I am. Welcome to both of you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. I want to begin with uh, what you all make of what what one of your colleagues had to say there in that clip. And Dr. Holton, I'll start with you. Uh, Anything you disagree with or you agree with everything she had to say there? No, I absolutely agree with what she had to say. 
there was actually uh, an article published this this month, actually, in JAMA Pediatrics that was a meta-analysis looking at rates of clinically clinical rates of depression and anxiety in youth, and the rates have doubled in this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely agree with her that the mental health impacts have been tremendous. We already had, you know, lots of mental health mm-hmm. issues with young people, but this past year has, has seen those rates increase. Dr. Johnson, your take? No, I agree 100% with what has been said, you know, um, I think was important which we just briefly mentioned is that none of this is new, right? We've been seeing this sort of trend over the past few years with a lot of issues around grief and loss and anxiety and depression, suicidality, and especially trauma, uh, and especially for children of color, of uh, LGBTQ uh, community, adolescents and young children. And what COVID has done is just really sh- it shed a really bright light on, on these longstanding problems. And, you know, and in many ways it's really exacerbated it. So mm-hmm. as Dr. Holton has said, we've seen, seen an increase in anxiety and depression, um, but we also have seen a significant increase in grief and loss, which we don't really focus as much on as we should, because, mm-hmm. you know, children have lost a lot of, tens of thousands of children have lost loved ones, loved ones to COVID. So there's an increase in grief and loss. Well, Dr. Johnson, let's stay with that for a moment because that's actually exactly where I'm going next. It is estimated maybe 40,000 to 50,000 children in the yes. U.S. have lost a parent to COVID-19. At the same time, you know, you, 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 you combine that with some of the wraparound services and community and just regular school support that kids were getting at school. And this is, as you all both, as everyone has said, this is just amplified what some of our, our youngest population, what they're, what they're dealing with. Dr. And Dr. Johnson, you said maybe enough hasn't been paid attention in terms of to the grief and loss that these kids have dealt with. Right, because, you know, we naturally focus on, you know, the symptoms of anxiety and depression, which can be a symptom of grief and loss and not really address the problem at its face value. Mm-hmm. And I think as children return to school, we, we're going to have to be really, really sensitive to children who are sad, who are withdrawn, who really can't participate in the level that they previously were able to participate in and be able to wrap our arms around them, have conversations with them, have mental health interventions for them that really focus on grief and loss, in addition to all the other things that these children are dealing with, such as depression, such as anxiety, such as obsessive compulsive disorders, all of these things that have been exacerbated since the, since the crisis. Let me ask you this, and Dr. Johnson and Dr. Holton, both of you can address this. Do you think then that the schools should... If they aren't aware, maybe try to be aware of those students who have lost a parent or lost a caregiver or, or lost someone in their household to this virus. I don't know how they could probably do that, but might that add to what some of the, then the, the educators and the school districts can offer to these kids? Uh, Dr. Holton? I think it certainly would be helpful to know that, right? I mean, definitely children who have lost a loved one to COVID are going to be experiencing this transition back to in-person school in a very different way than children who didn't experience that loss, right? That's tremendously huge. So if there is some way to identify those children, I think it's important because you really do want to pay even closer attention to those children. Dr. Holden, let me stay with you then. For someone listening that says, well, how do I even know? Because, and I don't want to be fair, I don't want all the teenagers getting mad at me. Because, you know, teenage teenage years are <laughs> interesting year, we all know. So how? what should they be looking for? Uh, you also don't want to, just because a teen doesn't want to, take out the trash because normally they don't want to anyway. Um, you don't want that to, someone to misinterpret that as a sign. But what should folks look for? Is there anything that's really identifying 
that you and Dr. Johnson can offer here? I think in general, if you're noticing that that someone is either more withdrawn than usual, kind of shut down, not talking as much as they normally would, um, they're more moody or or sad, um, you know, depression and, and anxiety in, in young people can look more irritable even than, than sad or anxious necessarily. Mm-hmm. So if they're acting out more, um, or if you notice changes in appetite, um, concentration, um, difficulty with sleep, even physical complaints, right? When kids mm-hmm. are, are not doing well in terms of their, their mental well-being, they also often complain of physical things like stomach aches, headaches, body aches, those kinds of things. So I think any of those, especially if you're seeing multiple of those things, can, can alert you to the fact that, that maybe something's um, going on in terms of this child's mental well-being. Dr. Johnson, what would you like to add to that? So in terms of what school should be looking for, very similar symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. I think they should focus a lot, though, on inattentiveness and lack of focus. Um, again, sadness and withdrawals, as well as anger, aggression, and fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those are just, you know, sort of like the underpinning of the um, overwhelming emotion that comes from grief and loss. Hypervigilance from children who have been traumatized, as well as a lot of physical reactions as well, as Dr. Holton says. You know, I've worked in schools um, through school-based health centers, and I've seen a lot of somatic complaints associated with um, emotional disturbance, such as headaches mm-hmm. and stomach aches and worsening of their chronic health problems. So I think we should be looking uh, for all of these things. And in the context of the school, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's going to be a real challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Because the focus is going to be on how do you um, bridge this educational loss that children have experienced, but at the same time, You've got to understand that they bring all of this into the classroom and there's no way you could actually teach children without addressing all of these really important issues. And, and, you know, and I have to say, you asked a question about, you know, you think, do you think schools can do this? You know, Mm -hmm. what are they doing? You know, I'm really pleased um, to say that many schools in the state of Georgia have been preparing for this. They, they, they are anticipating it and they are trying to provide really robust wraparound services for children in mm-hmm. addition to having mental health and physical health um, services, but they're also looking at helping children with their basic needs, like uh, food pantries and mm-hmm. clothes and, and uh, clothing uh, um, supports and and uh, school supplies and all those things that children need that's tied in with not only uh, the loss of, of parents who can provide these things for them, but just the, the nurturing and support that they need in order to, to do well in school. Dr. Johnson, and I think Dr. Halton might have mentioned this too, you, in, in that list you gave, you talked about fear. Could you t- take that mm-hmm. a little further for our listeners? What do you mean by that? And we talk about fear being a sign here, potential sign. Well, you know, the children, we're all fearful right now, right? Everyone's fearful because of this pandemic. Uh, but children sort of process the fear a little differently, right? Because it's sort of rooted in something that that's, that's sometimes uh, not tangible for them, right? So the fear of the insecurity that they that they find themselves in. A lot of these children, are, you know, are dealing with uh, housing insecurity, uh, food insecurity, having their basic needs met, watching fear from watching the consequences of being. Um, um, clustered, you know, with families. There's been a lot of domestic violence that's taken place over the past 18 months. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, by the end of last summer, there was a 30% increase in domestic violence worldwide. We think that children are being subjected to a little more um, increased frequencies of child abuse, even though it's been underreported because schools are the number one reporting 
uh, institutions uh, regarding child abuse. So we really are not seeing those numbers rise. But children are just fearful of just all of the ramifications that go along with COVID. And I'll have to say that this has been in place, you know, prior to COVID, but it just mm-hmm. really has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Dr. Holt, do you want anything to that in terms of fear here? I think Dr. Johnson said it really well. I mean, I think sometimes in children, right, fear fear can look like it does in adults with us kind of feeling, you know, them verbalizing anxieties, fears, worries, but a lot of times they aren't able to put those things into words. And so with younger kids, sometimes that comes out right in their behavior. And, and sometimes that can look more like oppositional, defiant, acting out, aggressive kind of behavior, but it's just them, right, trying to deal with these internal things that they're struggling with. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Jennifer Holton. She's an assistant professor of medicine and program director for Emory's Child and Adolescence Psychiatry Fellowship Program. I'm also joined by Dr. Vita Johnson, a professor of pediatrics at Emory School of Medicine and executive director of Partners for Equity, Equity in Child and Adolescent Health. I want to talk about our behavior as adults and, and how we react and deal with this and its impact on on our youth, on our kids. You know, the little ones love to emulate us <laughs> as well as they do. But how important is how we react as adults, whether we're parents or, you know, caregivers or aunties or what have you. But also at the same time, being mindful that you want to be, if possible, as, as honest as you can. Um, or do you have to sort of measure that depending on the age of the of the of the person here? Dr. Holton? I think you're you're right on, right? That that kids learn the most in terms of modeled behavior from adults in their lives. So our response is really important. And I think it is important to to be open with children. I mean, I would ideally sort of make sure that you're able to spend some time with children and ask open-ended questions about how they're feeling so that they can start to to put those feelings into words. And then once they do, right, we want to validate that, normalize it, right? This is a big transition. Of course, you might be feeling nervous, right? I'm feeling nervous too. Um, you want to temper that, right? You don't want to ideally have a full-on panic attack and, you know, burst into tears, you know, in front of your child because you want them, you want to communicate your anxiety as well, but you want to do that in a way of, I'm feeling anxious too, and we can do this together, right? And so we can talk about it together and we can problem solve together and we can think about ways to get through this. Um, so I think you you want to definitely express your own feelings and thoughts, um, but you want to kind of do that in a, in a measured way if possible. Speaking of a measured way, uh, Dr. Johnson, what's what would be a measured way? What do you think? Well, you know, <laughs> that, that's a great um, question because as, as Dr. Holden was talking, I was thinking about, you know, the challenges that adults are facing and especially um, families from lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. um, status, right? And we do focus a lot on, you know, providing a safe, nurturing, supportive environment for children. And, you know, and families, you know, it's, even when they're under stress and when they're dealing with a lot of these challenges have to find a way to, to insulate their children as best they can. But it's also important to be open uh, about their fears and to talk about, you know, potential solutions so children won't be overtaxed by it. But I think what we're missing sometimes is that our families need as much support as the children need. Mm-hmm. And even though we need to be as measured as we can regarding how we relate to them and express our concerns, they need to get the help that they need as well. And so we have to consider it as important 
factor in improving the mental overall mental health for children is improving is improving the mental health of their parents. We all know, and I know it's not lost on Dr. Johnson or Dr. Halton that when we talk about just overall basic health care insurance access to health care, and definitely when we talk about access to mental health resources, I've had so many conversations about on that about in, on this program. So we all know that that there are barriers to be, depend on your ethnicity, your social economic income. We know that. We've talked about what the schools are doing, but also, you know, once the kids are, are in their households, what resources are out there, especially for those households that have no insurance or underinsured, you know, where can folks turn? So um, another great question, right? It's a huge tra- challenge nationwide. The lack of mental health providers, the lack of access, especially for people who don't have insurance. Uh, but we do have some resources. So you have some of the federally qualified health centers or the community health centers. The majority of them have behavioral health services and they um, do not deny anyone care based on the inability to pay. To pay. We have our community service boards where adults can go, which really focuses primarily on with adults, but not necessarily with children. Uh, we have a really robust school mental health program in our state, the APEX program that's uh, administered through the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities that places mental health providers in schools to work with children directly. And, um, and again, if children are not covered, they still provide that service for those children. And right now, I think they're in about uh, 560 schools statewide. Do you think people know about this? Do you think not as much as not to the extent that they should No, uh, but I think there's a big push statewide to address mental health across the board. Right. And there's a lot of work that's being done in the in uh, with our state agencies, Department of Public Health, the Department of Behavioral Health and Development Disabilities, uh, academic institutions, multi, uh, private providers, uh, 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 organizations or um, divisions uh, that like Dr. Holton. I mean, so we're there's a push to sort of emphasize the prevalence and the need for mental health services. Dr. Holton, I now have an email that popped up here, and a listener wants to know. I just asked a question, but about your program, what are you? What can you all offer the community here? I think Dr. Johnson's point was really important, right? That there, the needs are great, right? And the resources we do have a lot of resources in Georgia, and at the same time, our resources are stretched. They were stretched before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but they're even more stretched now, right? Um, at Emory, we do have a. a clinic here um, in our child and adolescent psychiatry division. But again, right, we we sort of are, are frequently maxed out at our capacity as well. Um, we're always, you know, trying to get as many children through as possible. Um, but resources are stretched right now, I think, across mm-hmm. the state. Um, and some of these some of these options that Dr. Johnson was talking about, especially the school resources, I think are, are really tremendous. Um, there's also the Georgia Crisis and Access Line. So regardless of whether you have insurance or any ability to pay, they'll they'll sort of talk to you about what's going on with your child and try to help you think about resources and options in your particular area. So even if you're not in the Atlanta area, if you're somewhere else in Georgia, um, they can kind of help you think through different options, which I think is a really wonderful resource that we have here. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, how do you get your teenager to open up? I know this is... That's that's another session, but I'll let you all take a crack at it. Uh, Dr. Johnson, how do you get the teens to open up? 
And I know each case is individual, but <laughs> it, it, it is. It depends on, you know, your, you know, the family dynamics prior mm-hmm. to this. Right. So yeah. communication is key. Yeah. It, it always is, you know, from the time that they're small to the time they're adolescents and to give them space and not to infringe upon them, you know, your opinion or, you know, your concerns initially, but just to give them opportunity to, to speak and express themselves in a meaningful way. Um, and, you know, you know, teenagers are teenagers. Um, they have a tendency, of course, to, to go to their, to look to their peers yeah. <laughs> for a lot of, um, uh, of information that they need. Uh, but when you have, you know, like I said, start when you're young, when you, when you have this sort of uh, relationship where you're always talking about things, you're always open about things. Mm-hmm. And when you really need to be open and communicate, it's much easier. Well, let's talk about peers. And I know I have some teens who listen to this program. If you're, you got a buddy out there and perhaps you are noticing some of those signs that y'all talked about earlier, as a peer, as a fellow, you know, student, friend, what, what can they do? How should they help? Dr. Holton? I think one thing is is to be mindful that, you know, you are also a teenager, right? It is not your responsibility to try to fix this for the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is important not, not to feel like you're alone in this, right? To reach out to an adult that you trust, whether that's a parent, whether that's somebody in the school system, a counselor in the school system, but, but reach out, right? And talk to somebody about what's going on so that you can also get support as you support your friend. As we wrap up, and Dr. Halton, I'll start with you. And we, when we began this conversation, we talked about the statistics out there, particularly as it relates to kids who might have lost a parent or suffered some loss or grief. What is that one lasting message you do want to live with listeners as it relates to our young folks and what they possibly dealing with during this pandemic? What's that message you want to leave them with? I think perhaps the most important thing, right, is just to, as much as you can, to try to keep communication open with with children, whether you're the teacher, whether you're the parent, whether you're a relative, but just to try to try to be open and listen. And when that child or that young person talks to you about something, right, we have this tendency to want to fix it immediately or or discount it and say, no, 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 you're okay. But really just listen and validate and try to try to make sure they they know that you hear them mm-hmm. and you understand before you problem solve with them, but then move on to that problem solving piece. Dr. Johnson, I'll give you the last word. I think we should be really mindful to be looking for um, these behaviors and for these issues that children are facing and not overlook it as we are dealing with our own struggles and that, you know, um, we are, you know, incredibly important <laughs> when it comes to being able to um, address the needs of our children, but also realize that we're all in this together and we're all experiencing very, very similar things and that we need to uh, reach out to one another to garner the support in in order to care for our children, but also to take care of ourselves. All right, Dr. Vita Johnson, professor of pediatrics at Emory School of Medicine and executive director of Partners for Equity in Child and Adolescent Health. And I was also joined by Dr. Jennifer Holton, an assistant professor of medicine and program director for Emory's Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program. Both join me to talk about the mental and behavioral health issues that some kids may be facing as they return to school. And also what we all can do as parents, teachers, and aunties can best do to support them. Thank you both for taking the time. Good information. As always, a note of disclaimer, we encourage all, all of you out there to make sure you consult with your own primary care, mental or physical 
representative for your family. And if you don't have one, we will have links to all those programs that Dr. Johnson and Dr. Holton listed on our website. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as you all do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.